Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 399. Today is January 26, 2023. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Today, I want to talk about real estate and specifically the housing sector. This goes back to some comments I made in the previous episode about how the Federal Reserve was trying to create a controlled burn of the economy. A lot of people think that I'm really negative on real estate. That's what I want to talk about today. Before we get to that, I just want to reiterate, the market is doing extremely well so far this year. The first week or two of last year opened up really well as well. It's a seasonal effect. Look what happened last year. Now, I don't know that that's going to happen again this year that we're putting in highs right now. But what I do know is that I'm not all excited about what I'm seeing in the media And I'm not excited about it because none of the things that the media is promoting as being good news now was bad news last year. Just briefly, I want to review. I've never been concerned about inflation, nor about the general rising of interest rates or the inverted yield curve or the slowing down of GDP, you know, all the things that were pummeled with last year, which really proved to be big nothing burgers. You know, right now the media is getting all excited about the growth that we saw through the end of last year. Well, the economy was growing all along last year. The only reason that people thought that it was slowing down was because the media kept creating stories telling people it was. So last year, I wasn't worried about those things. This year, I'm not excited when the media suddenly comes out and changes their narrative and tells you how rosy and great everything is. We knew that inflation was going to peak. We knew that in March of 2022, because that's when most of the major commodities, and especially copper, put in a multi-year high. All that had to eventually trickle through the economy, and that's where we are today. What I'm concerned about, and it's what I've been concerned about since about September or so of last year, is the decline in corporate profits. Now, because of the way that analysts report earnings, we don't have a good insight on where earnings are going to come in over the next 12 months. Some analysts are still reporting numbers as high as 230 in aggregate for the S&P 500. Other people that I think are more realistic are down at 200. And there's a couple analysts that I respect very highly. They're talking about numbers around 180, 185, 190. Until we get clarity on where earnings are going to come in, I want to remain cautious. Because long-term, the only thing that really ultimately drives the price of a stock is its earnings. And the excesses and the stimulus and the overhang from the pandemic, which created a lot of winners when the money was easy, is now creating a lot of losers. And I do think that profits have peaked, at least in the short term. So right now, with the S&P flirting around that 4,000 mark, which incidentally is now above the 50 and the 200, and I believe, I think, also the 100-day moving average. It's because all those moving averages have been declining because the market for the last year has been putting in lower highs. Now, there is a probability that it could break out and go higher, and at some point it will, and I hope to be buying into the market before that happens. But right now, when I look at the upside, and I say, is it more likely to break out or to break down I think it's more likely to break down or at least remain stagnant and trade in a zone. 
And again, we won't know which direction that's going to be until we get better clarity on earnings. But when you look at the valuation, the price per earnings ratio on the S&P 500, and you look at that equivalent ratio in terms of owning just a simple money market fund that has no duration, that doesn't expose you to any interest rate risk or market risk, where your principal is essentially about as risk-free as you're going to get outside of a bank account, well, that difference in yield, to me, doesn't make sense to go into risky stocks when you can collect a substantial yield by simply sitting in a money market fund and being patient and waiting to see how things get resolved. Ah, but I digress. I put out a blog, oh, I think it was around the 19th or 20th, so a week, a couple weeks ago, whenever it was, and I showed how earnings estimates are starting to come down. And that chart is also historical in nature, where it goes all the way back to the 1960s. And I point out some events there that I think are similar to the situation we're in now, and we'll talk about those in future episodes. But the big thing I wanted to point out is that earnings estimates are coming down. And the key here is we don't know how low. If you look on that chart and you see how rapidly that earnings can deteriorate during a recession. That would be during like 2008 or during the dot-com bubble. You can see in that chart that earnings can just plummet downward. And when they do, correspondingly, the prices on the S&P 500 tumble down as well. That's my concern. That's what I'm worried about. Incidentally, in terms of my blog post, you can sign up for them for free. You won't get spammed. It's not junk mail. You can unsubscribe at any time at the bottom of every email that gets sent out. There's an unsubscribe link. Every blog that I've put out since 2013 is archived at investablewealth.com. So it's no surprise what you're going to receive in these blog email notifications. Scroll through them. Get an idea what kind of content I put out. If you're interested, please subscribe for free. If you're not interested, if that's not the kind of content you want to see, don't waste your time signing up. I don't put out any other type of alerts or information other than what you see in those archives. And please don't forget, whenever you sign up for the email notifications, you'll receive a verifying email. You have to click the link on that email to prove that it's you and that you really want to subscribe to the information. If you don't receive that verification email, look in your spam folder. And also, if you do want to be receiving information from me, make sure that you're whitelisting anything from the domains of investablewealth.com or wealthsteading.com. Now, on to today's topic, which is real estate. And specifically, I want to talk about the housing sector. That's residential real estate. And this is in reference to some comments that I've received about the previous podcast where I talked about the controlled burn of the economy and how that's having a major impact on the real estate market and how generally that's what the Federal Reserve does when they want to cool down the economy and when they want to create unemployment. Usually the housing sector is the first economic sector that starts to go into decline. Now, when I said that, some people took my comments to mean that I think that we're going to have a major housing collapse like we saw during the financial crisis of 2008. That's not at all what I think. I think that it's even likely that the housing sector, particularly residential single-family properties, 
could be a bright spot in 2023. Now, I know that's counterintuitive to what a lot of people are thinking and a lot of people are saying, but think about the Federal Reserve. They want to slow down the economy. They don't want to kill it. And specifically when it comes to the housing sector and real estate, you know, you may think you own your home, but if you have a mortgage, you don't own it. It's the banks that own it. So the Federal Reserve, which is a conglomerate of all the major financial institutions, they don't want mortgage slaves to go into default. They want to keep the real estate market robust so they continue to earn interest from the mortgages. The reason that we had such a collapse of the housing market in 2008, and which is totally different than the situation today, is that in 2008 you had two major events taking place. Number one, because of both monetary and fiscal policies, and this is policies imposed by the government on lending, the banks were incentivized to loan money to people that didn't have enough income to make the mortgage payments long term. Now, the way that the banks thought they were going to get around the chickens coming home to roost someday was that they were bundling all these loans up and reselling them. A lot of that stuff got sold to foreigners. A lot of stuff went to Europe. And the big U.S. banks were really just taking all that risk and putting it off on somebody else. But that did eventually create a debt crisis, as bad lending practices always do. And furthermore, because you had such a large amount of houses being built, far in capacity of what the real demand would be if it were solely based on people that could afford the loans, because you had such an oversupply of houses, you had a double whammy. You had, you had all the liquidity and all the money drying up once the banks started to refuse to loan money not only to people that couldn't pay for it, but they stopped loaning money to anybody because nobody was sure of who was solvent. So you had the liquidity crisis. At the same time, you had a major oversupply of houses. That's ultimately why we saw such a substantial crash in the real estate market. That's not the case today. The bank's balance sheets are very stable, and there are very few subprime loans within the traditional established banking business. Now, outside of the traditional banks, those kind of rocket mortgage, shadow banking type networks. Yeah, there's a lot of problems over there. That stuff could fall like a house of cards. But for the most part, that's more speculative investment money and not big bank institutional money. So right now, the average homeowner is not only able to meet the loan payments on his mortgage, he also has a mortgage in the majority of cases of a historically low interest rate of at or below 3%. And these are fixed rate loans, which again are different than what happened in 2008 when everybody was getting these variable rates. The other major thing that's different today from what it was you know, 14 or 15 years ago is that we have a housing shortage, not an oversupply. For exactly the reasons that we had the market crash in 2008, many home builders went out of business. They never came back into business. And for those companies that were building homes, They've been very cautious about overbuilding, much like we're seeing with the oil companies, which are being very reserved in not going out and overspending to drill for new oil. That's resulted in a housing shortage of something like maybe five to six million units short of where we should be given the population growth and specifically 
the population growth of millennials, which are finally, in these last couple years, starting to form households. And in terms of housing prices, you have to take this in context. Yes, housing prices went up crazy over the last two or three years. However, after 2008, and all the way up until about 2017, 2018, housing prices barely went up at all. And so while there was a dramatic increase just before and definitely during and after the pandemic, if you average that out over a 15-year period, the rate in growth is not out of line with where it would be historically. So I'm not saying that housing prices aren't going to go down from here. In fact, I hope they do because I would like to buy another home. But what I am saying is that I don't think there's going to be a severe crash in residential real estate. I think prices will probably moderate and single-family residential real estate will be a good investment now and into the future. Now, that's not to say that there aren't problem areas within real estate. Specifically, as it relates to single-family homes, I think there could be a big bubble in the vacation Airbnb-type properties. There were a lot of people that went out during the pandemic and bought, you know, two or three houses mortgaged to the hilt, and the only way they're able to make those payments is by high rents on those properties. Now, should any of that slow down, I do think that part of the market could fall apart like a house of cards. Now, again, personally, I hope it does, because there is some property out in the mountains of Utah that I would like to purchase. Another area of residential real estate which may be getting overbuilt is multifamily units and specifically multifamily rental units. Now, that's holding up pretty well now, but you're seeing that, you know, with inflation coming down, that the average rent is now below $2,000. If that continues to decline, you might see that some of those multifamily housing units end up underwater. Oh, and speaking of that, one thing that also goes back to the mortgages and the stability of the homeowner today, as I mentioned, they have these very low interest rates. There's also a majority of homes, a vast majority of homes, with substantial equity in the property, which is, again, something totally different from what we saw during the housing crisis in 2008. Right now, about the only homeowners that would be underwater on their mortgage would be those homes that were purchased over the last, say, two, two and a half years. And in aggregate, when you look at the whole housing market, there's not enough of those homes to throw the entire market in disarray. Other areas of real estate, which could be problem areas, are the areas that were problems before the pandemic. And that's brick and mortar retail and office space. We saw a lot of those properties get washed out during the pandemic, and I still think that there could be more of those that have further to drop. But outside of those specific sectors, I don't think that the real estate market is that bad. And in fact, in addition to residential real estate, the real bright shining opportunity in real estate development is industrial construction. And that goes along with the continuing theme that was here before the pandemic, and that's reshoring and onshoring of businesses, not only because of what we saw with the supply chain issues during the pandemic, but the fact continues to remain that the United States has abundant and inexpensive energy compared to the rest of the world. That's been bringing manufacturing, especially manufacturing done by robotics and automation, into the United States and into North America generally. That was the subject of the book that I wrote back in 2016 entitled 
the robots are coming. So that trend will continue. And again, if you dig down into the data, you'll see that industrial development and any businesses associated with that are on fire right now. The demand is substantial. And so, as always, despite all the negativity you see in the headlines, there's a lot of opportunities. You just need to position yourself to take advantage of it. More on that in future episodes. Until then, as always, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best returns.